All right. Hey, welcome everybody. Sunday service. Good to see you, everybody here. Beautiful, beautiful. Those at home, welcome, guys, to service. We miss you. We hope that uh, God uh, moves your heart to come out and join us soon. Uh, all right. Sweetness, sweetness. We are in a series called the Fishers of Men, Fishers of Men series, and it's a series designed, right? It's, it's a series designed to stir affection, affection and desires for God's kingdom and, and building plan, right? It's, 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 a, it's a series that, that wants to move, that wants to motivate, that wants to inspire your heart to think about how do I bring restoration to the relationships that I have in my life? My personal relationship with God, my relationship with my significant other, my relationship to my work, to my church, to my city, right? And these past two weeks, what we've been talking about has really been kind of like a, a private sector. It's really been about our own personal hearts and our own personal relationship here in this place. It's asking is, do you have this identity that is driven and guided by Jesus Christ? Do you have an identity where you are not chasing after other things that give you worth and value, but that you know in your life it is Jesus Christ himself that offers that worth, that value to you, right? And, and, and these two past messages, it was meant to be kind of like a gut check. I don't think I did a very good job last week about doing the gut check, but it's meant to be a big gut check for you because it deals again with your private sector. Because if, if in your heart, privately, you have a struggle with this already, right? What that reveals is, is, is pretty much your personal struggle and your personal identity with Christ. Think about this. Last week we talked about how marriage and how in the idea of marriage, it's supposed to be this gospel reenactment. That in marriage, you are, you are called to live out this picture of what Jesus Christ has done in your life for somebody else. That he saved them and he brings them to a place of sanctification, a place in a better, you know, less Christianese word is to grow them, to flourish them, to bring them to a place that God has made them to be, that you are a vessel and a tool for that journey. That marriage in that place is a gospel reenactment, right? And, and then for some reason in our hearts, though, if we're honest about it, some of us, we, we run to one extreme or the other. One extreme is, I don't want to get married. No way, no how. That extreme that, 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 that puts the picture like, hey, you know what, I don't want to get married because, um, uh, because it's, 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 it doesn't fit my, my, my time period, right? Um, I don't want to get married because we, we don't think that it's, it's, it's right, it, it gets in the way, it's inconvenient for me. We don't want to get married because we, we think it, it's, um, it's, 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 self, uh, it's, it's, it's a distraction for my personal advancement in life. Rather than being open and saying to God, hey, God, hey, if you want it, then I'll seek to live my life to serve this person whom you've brought into me, for me, right, to advance them towards the picture in which you have created for them, if it's your will. But if not, I'm, you don't jump to this picture because there, when you have an attitude like that, what does that reveal about your heart? When, you're, when your automatic reflex is no. Because it's an inconvenience. No, because it's a distraction. No, because, you know, my, my ambition, my career, my things is most important. What that reveals in your heart 
is this lack of understanding of what it means to give, what it means to sacrifice, what it means to have this relationship with God. Because you got to question that relationship with God. You're trying to go out and be a blessing to the world when you can't even be honest about your own personal reflection between you and God. You want to go out there and bless the world, but you can't even deal with the idea that how can I bless, serve, lift somebody up personally? How hypocritical is that? We jump to this reflexive action of no. Because what it reveals is, is it reveals a personal self-centeredness in, that's driving us. It's not God. Right? A self-focus. Instead of, you ain't coming from a humble attitude here. You're coming from a, a sense of, you know, it's for me. Or, or, some of you guys said, no, I don't want to get married because I don't feel like I deserve it. And you're kind of down on yourself. That I'm not pretty enough or I'm not worthy enough. That's not, a hum- that's not, that's not humility here, by the way. Right? It takes, first, it takes God out of the picture tremendously, right? And on one hand, it's not humility. You know what? It's pride. Because you know what you're doing by saying that? I don't, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty. What you're doing is you're drawing attention again back to yourself. Instead of saying, God, I'm open. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, praise you. Instead of being open to the idea of anything, you jump to these extremes in your hearts. And what these extremes reveal about your heart, if you're honest and this is a gut check, it reveals what's actually really driving it. Because what's really driving it, if you're honest, probably is not God. What's driving it is your own self-centered desires. Always is the biggest problem. It's the self-centeredness that, that, that we deal with in humanity, which is fine, right? But it's meant to wake us up. Because you want to bring restoration to work, to school, to church, to people around you. That's in the public sphere. You can put up a front there. You can, you can pretend there. But in the private sphere of relationship, you can't. That's transparency. That's realness. That's 100, right? And you can't do that. And so a lot of us, we jump to... It, by not dealing with that part, we're not seeing the truth of this, it reveals actually what's going on in our heart. Some of us, we jump to the other extreme, which is, yes, yes, I want to get married. Yes, I want to get married. Yes, I want to have a husband. Yes, I want to have a wife. Why? Because I want to feel better about myself. Yes, because they make me feel better about myself. Yes, because I want someone, I don't want to be lonely anymore. I want to have someone in my life that's going to make me feel complete. And in that extreme, guess what's driving you? It ain't a sense of wanting love. or just, It's you. It's, again, a self-motivating, self-centered push for your own ambition. Marriage, the purpose of marriage is not about you. The purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. That God has given you and graced you with the, with the privilege of being in someone's life to walk that person towards the image that he has made for them from the beginning when he's called them. He has given you that privilege. And if your focus is all about, I'm lonely, I need somebody, I want to feel complete, then you have lost the picture of why marriage is there. And then marriage becomes an ultimate idol in your life. What does that reveal about you and God? All right? See, the first two messages, what it really was meant to do is it's meant to do a gut check for your inner self. 
a gut check of your reality with your relationship with God, with God, your identity, whether you really place it in. And that gut check of private life, that if you were, let's say you're not, and you're thinking, like, I can't really understand this PT because I'm not married, I'm not in a relationship. If you were to do even a thought exercise, what would be your reflexive reaction to it? Because whatever it is, that reveals what's driving your heart, honestly. You guys follow me? Right? Today, I want to get into the public sector, though. Right? I want to I share with you guys how the gospel shapes your public life. Not just your private life, because I think that's, a lot of us, we think this religion is all about the private life. It's what I do privately. It's my secret thing, you know. What I do in private is not important. I, can't, I shouldn't need to put that into the public life. But the Bible, if you read it, it's not about that at all. The Bible is all about how your gospel, what Jesus Christ has done in your life, ought to affect and ought to engage in your public life, right? Especially in the way of work. In the way of work. And so a lot of us, I know we're in, we're in the midst of our careers. We're trying to look for jobs here. We're doing, and I want to I give you some words. Can I give you some words today to help, to help guide you, at least, in your journey, right? With taking the gospel and letting that shape your work. Letting that engage in your public life, okay? So that you can bring restoration, at least in this sector of it, okay? Three things we're going to talk about today. The passion, the focus on work, and the reason behind it. The passion for the public life, the focus on work from the gospel, and the reason to do this. All right? Open your Bibles. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to verse, chapter 3, verse 9. We're going to do 11 to 14 first. And Paul is writing to Titus, and he's writing... To this group, and he's, he's at this point, he's giving them a picture. He's giving them a picture of the future. He's giving them a picture of the, the, the day when all things are made new. The day when heaven becomes earth. The day when God and Jesus Christ returns. The day when all wrongs have been righted. He's giving them this eternal picture, right? Not so that they can think about it and be nostalgic and be like, oh, that's so great. Heaven is waiting for me one day. He's giving them this picture so that it would drive their passion for the life they have at this moment. See, everywhere in the scripture, when the Bible talks about the future, it's not meant to be a nostalgic feeling here. It's not meant to be an opium for your soul while bad things are happening to you. And you give them this verse like, oh, don't worry, but in the future everything will be nice. When Paul speaks about the future, about heaven, about what's to come, about the return of our king, he speaks of it in such a way to drive your passion to live life now. Okay? So check this out. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's Jesus. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The grace of God that has now come, the grace of God that has appeared to all men, 
teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us to say no to worldly passions. And it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright lives. As we wait, as we wait for what? The blessed hope. And the hope is what? The coming of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying here? Okay? When we think about our identity and our destiny, when we think about what is to come, when we think about the hope that we have as believers because of Jesus Christ, when we begin to marvel of the future glory that is awaiting us, what it's meant to do for us right now is meant to give us a passion, Paul says, to do what? To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives as we wait for the second coming. As we wait for the coming of Christ, it's meant to drive us to be a people that speaks of who Jesus Christ is. It's meant to drive us to be a people that does right. Now, the Bible here talks about the word upright in verse 13. The word upright. The word upright means to live justly in this world. And when we think about living justly, a lot of us think it's about this private moral life that I have inside of me. That that. As a man, as a woman, as I walk outside, I have principles, I have character. That's my private moral life that I am supposed to live. And I'm going to live that as best I can with the best character I can. That's not what the Bible means by upright. That's not what the Bible means by just living. When the Bible talks about upright, just life, it, it, it always talks about an upright, just person. Someone who understands what is to come and is willing to live that passion out, an upright person like this, seeks to do what? The Bible says the just are those who are steadfast in their character, steadfast in their focus, steadfast in their desire, steadfast on their principles, to be willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. A just person who lives their life out in this world, holding on to the hope to come, is somebody who's willing to go out there and be willing to take the hit themselves so that their community will flourish, so that the people around them will flourish. The unjust are people who are willing to disadvantage their community in order to advantage themselves. You guys follow me? That's the difference. Paul calls us, as you wait for the blessed hope, you are called to live upright, godly lives, just lives. A life that is meant to bless your community, even at the cost of yourself. As you give up your right to bless the world around you. You see, an unjust and unupright person would do what? I live for myself. I don't care if my community gets affected. What's more important is whether I get what I get out of it. See, an unjust person would disadvantage their community just so that they can gain something out of it. A just person will not withhold good when it's in their power to act. A just person will seek to do good. So, what does this mean? The blessed hope that's to come. As you, as a believer, think about this. You have been given this promise 
this promise of eternity, that the life you live now, the story that you write now, the threads that you go through now, it is the cover page. It is the introduction of the great story to come. You have been given the promise of a life and of adventure and of a story, of a journey that is going to be unbelievable, fantastical in nature, beautiful in all aspects, hope-filled. That is your destiny. That is your identity. And because of this blessed hope, Paul says, it ought to drive you now. It ought to push you now. It ought to remind you now that you are here to live upright lives. The blessed hope turns you into a just person who is incredibly civic-minded, public-minded, passionate for public justice. You are law-abiding, working for peace in society. You're showing humble servant attitude towards all people, all beliefs. You seek for the common good of the area around you. You're part of the community seeking for the common good. If you look at the community, you ask yourself, hey, what's wrong with our community? And people say it's homelessness. All right. For the good of the community, let's deal with homelessness. If it's the public school, all right, as a part of the community, let's work with the public school. Right? You're passionate to seek for the advantage of your community, even if it costs you something. Yes, get me? A, a, a person who is understanding the blessed hope to come, it drives you to live justly, to live for the blessing of others. You guys get that? Right? That's the passion. But specifically today, I want to talk about the work. Because the blessed hope, it should affect one very specific public sector of your life, which is your work, right? You were called to live upright lives in your work, okay? And so I'm going to share with you guys a few things about this, okay? You were called to live upright life in our work. Most fish, uh, the fact is this, okay, most Christians seal off their faith from their work. Work is, work is one thing, faith is private, I can't combine those things together. Most Christians are Christians on the weekends, they're Christians on Fridays, or in their private lives, but it never has a touch, nor does it have a glimpse, nor does it shine through in their public work life. When it comes to their job, the tendency is to say what? I'll, I'll avoid, you know, as a principal person, I'll avoid being immoral or illegal, but I don't really want to think about my faith in the public sector of my work. But you have to think about it. You have to think about it. Because those who have been blessed for the blessed hope to come, God calls us in this moment to live that hope out in the community in the world around us. Ephesians 6 tells us you what? You are always working for God. In every aspect, not just in the church, you're always working for God. He is looking at your work. He is looking at what you're producing. He is looking at what you're doing. Corinthians chapter 1, I mean Colossians chapter 1 says what? Christ needs to be preeminent over your whole life. Not just your weekend life. Not just your Bible study life. Not just your Sunday church service life. But your whole life. That he is preeminent over all of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells you what? Everything we do must be done for the glory of God. Yes, follow me? Which, which means this. It means that we have to have a real conversation about 
the blessed hope, living upright lives in our work. We got to have a real conversation about that. Let's think about our work and what it means to do this, okay? Our work must be shaped by the gospel hope that we have. And it's not easy, right? I'm not going to lie to you. It's not an easy thing to do, right? A lot of you guys who work in very difficult areas, I understand. It's not easy to do, right? But we have to think about it. We have to work it out. We have to figure out something. We have to get this gospel hope into this public sector, okay? For example, if you're a Christian in the financial world, are there tools that you use, that, that are used to exploit people in nature? If you work in the financial districts, in the financial world, do people in that field use tools to exploit other people? Are you a part of that system? Are you part of that institution? Do you use those, those tools? What do you do? You don't, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it, PT. That's just, I mean, it's, it's part of my day. I don't want to think about it. But you have to. You have to. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. And the gospel hope is in you. And the worst thing you can do is turn a blind eye to it. You got to think about these things. You got to ask these questions. If you're in a promotion or marketing, I try to pick jobs where I know none of you guys are in, okay? So when the, when the promotions, incur, is the promotion encouraging idolatry? When is the ad appeal to the person's insecurity, getting them to believe that if they look like the model, their lives would be better? Are you a part of that? Are you a part of marketing like that, where instead of flourishing them, you are actually enabling idolatry into the world around you? Are you as a Christian participating in helping cultural idolatry move forward in the hearts of people? I don't want to think about that, but you have to. You got to think about this. You are a Christian with the gospel hope living inside of you, and that hope should affect the public sector. It is not a private hope. It is not a private thing. The hope that God has given to you must be an impactful hope to the world around you, to the community with you. And this is what it means to be upright in the public sector of work. So that you would seek, even at your own disadvantage, you would seek for the blessing and the flourishing of the community around you. So how do I determine what jobs to do and what not to do? Is there, is there a list, PT? Because it sounds like, you know, I shouldn't work at all. It should all be passes. No, there's no list here, okay? There's no list. There's only trajectories. I'm only going to give you trajectories here, okay? I'm going to give you the broad principles. And you know what? You need to be able to have a discussion of how to apply these principles in real life. The Bible doesn't offer a list, by the way, so I can't give you a list. That's the problem, right? But the, the Bible offers trajectories, things that you need to think about, things that you need to have a conversation about, things that you, as you are in those fields, things that you should be having questions with your brothers and sisters and saying, hey, man, I'm in this field, and this is one thing that, I, that everyone else does. I feel like it's really exploitive in nature, right? What do you think I should do? Instead of like, eh, I don't want to think about it. Let's just turn a blind eye to it, but that you would have brothers and sisters alongside you. And those of you guys who've been working for a long time, I hope that, you know, you would give wisdom on how to navigate this in such a way where you're being blessing and not 
adding and fueling idolatry in the workplace. That you have a community around you, that you would break these ideas with them. Say, hey, you know what? I'm doing this job. I feel very uncomfortable about it. It's asking me to do this. Everyone in my job does it, and it's the best way that they know how to do it. So what do I do? Right? And I pray, I pray, I pray that you have people that you can do a soundboard, people who are in faith, people who love you, people who are gospel-minded, who can sit there and kind of walk with you here. That's why we have salt. That's why we have multiple generations. That's why we offer men's group where we offer these, this range of experiences, women group where we offer these range of experiences where you can be there and learn and grow and understand. Right? I remember a time when one of, my, one of the brothers yeah, he was getting his job, you know, just got out of school, just got his job for the first time, and he was doing his work, and he literally came up to me and says, hey, man, like this, and I was kind of surprised he even asked me about it, but he's like, this is one thing they do in my work, that for sure I am lying, and for sure I am manipulating the person I am talking to, right, to get this, this booking, this gig, or this deal, right, what do I do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor, bro, I don't know anything about your, like, workplace, you know, like, what do you mean, what do you do? Like, what do I do? Like, should I just ignore it and just kind of go with it? Is this, is this how people are in work? Do we just kind of go with the flow? I'm like, no. So what do I do? Right? I said, like, well, you got to think about it. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking about it. That's why I'm asking you. And so I told him this. Like, look, I don't know what to do in this field. Right? I've never worked in that field in my life. I, I'm a, uh, best thing I do, if you ask me about education, about, you know, being a, a, a tutor, I can tell you that. Right? But what I, tell you, this is, what, what I can tell you in this area is this. You shouldn't manipulate them, right? And you shouldn't trust in this process just because everyone else trusts in this process to do this. And even if you do trust in this process, right, what is your motivation behind it? Is it just merely to make money? Or are you willing to do what's right even if it costs you a few thousand dollars in the long end? Maybe even $10,000 in the long end. Will you be willing to do that? And that was a hard question to ask. That was a hard question to ask of him, right? I'm like, 10,000 versus zero? I'm just got out of work, just got out of school. I kind of want the 10K, P, PT, right? And I was like, you're a Christian? You tell me, right? But that's my best answer to you. And so you know what he did? Like, surprising to me, he said this. All right, I figured out how to do it. He said, how? When I'm supposed to actually do this exercise, I'm just going to use the restroom for an hour, and I'll come back, you know? And I was like, cool. Did it work? But yeah, they, they didn't catch me. I guess they were really busy, right? But you know what's crazy? You know what's crazy? And this doesn't happen all the time, okay? So just, but just one check. He became the first junior person to book more deals in that company than ever before by doing it not the wrong way, not, not the way that everyone else was doing it. You guys get me? Right? What I'm saying here is this, okay? You got to ask these questions. You can't just ignore it. You can't just sweep it on the road just because everybody else is doing it. Just because that's the way the business is run. Your identity, your hope to live an upright life, a just life in the public sector, is that you seek for the blessing of the community, even at the cost of yourself. That's biblical work. 
So I don't have a list for you of what jobs to do and how to do those jobs. What I have is trajectories, okay? And it's in the Bible. It's in the text. I'm about to read it, right? There are trajectories that you can use as a gauge, as a litmus, and as a way to have a conversation with other brothers and sisters on how to progress in these fields. Because every field is different. Every way is different. You guys get me? Every field is different. And so you got to be able to navigate this in your field. So the first trajectory, okay, check this out, in work, is motivation. You got to ask the question about motivation. Look at verse 14. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself us for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is God, what is good. The motivation of the gospel. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. And then verse 8, chapter 3. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The first trajectory as you are dealing with work life, the first trajectory as you're dealing with work life, as you're seeking to live upright, just life in the public sector, is the question of motivation. What is my motivation? Why do you work and why did you take the job you have? Some people would say, I did it for the money, PT. And I would say, you got to eat. I get it. It makes sense. Right? Some people would say, I did it because it's emotional fulfilling, PT. I did it because I like it, even though it doesn't pay at all. Right? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't succumb to the man. Right? I did the work that I felt was passionate about in my life. Great. You got to do something that you love. It sucks to do something you hate. Right? But to reduce work to those motivation is, is, is foolish. To reduce work to either money or personal fulfillment takes out the picture of work in general. Do you know work was created by God? Did you guys know that? Right? Work was created by God. It's not by man. Work was created by God. The Bible has a very beautiful picture of work. The Bible tells us Christians are concerned about what? The common good. Let me read that again. Verse 1. To be ready to do whatever is good. Verse 14, uh, that we will be a people eager to do what is good. Verse 8, and I want to stress, right, that these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. The motivation of a Christian as they begin to do work is to seek for the common good. You have to ask yourself this question. Is my work helping human to flourish in some way? Is it building human community? You have to ask that question. And you have to take work that might not be as financially fulfilling or emotionally fulfilling if you know that you can do it in a way that brings human flourishing. Okay? You guys get me? You guys get what I just said right there? You got to ask the question, does this work actually help bring human flourishing? Does this work actually help build human community? Is it actually doing good for the community around me? And am I willing 
Am I willing to take less pay or less emotional fulfillment if I know that it does do good? And now the question you're asking is this. What's flourishing mean, PT? Like, what's considered human flourishing? What's considered the good for the community? Think about the first job. The first job ever made was job, what was the first job that was ever made? It was a, starts with a G. Gardener. Is that gardener? I think someone said gardener, right? Gardener. Adam and Eve were gardeners, okay? What, is, what does a gardener do? A gardener digs up the ground, rearranges the raw material, and produces something that human being actually needs. What? Food and flowers. Provides food for nourishment and flowers for emotional health, right? Adam and Eve, their first job was they took the raw material that they had, they rearranged it, and they produced something that was beautiful, flourishing for the human existence. We need food, but we also need beauty, don't we? All work, I think, is pretty much, this. there's maybe a few work that's just straight up, like, evil, but, like, all work, I think, does this, right? It rearranges raw materials and brings something that they need. Like, for example, if you're a musician, you take the raw material of sound, right? What do you do? And you put it together and you give sound a meaningful pattern that lifts people up, that emotionally inspires, that drives people to greater heights of imagination. Don't knock the musicians just because they don't get paid much, right? What about the architect? The architect takes the raw material of the earth, creates bridge, building streets, all things we need to connect communities together, right? What about writers and actors? Take the raw material of the human experience and do what? Give stories that impacts and touches you and inspires you? What about the venture capitalist, the entrepreneur? Takes the raw material of an idea or a talent and creates new jobs for people around, right? I'm sure you're doing all of these things one way or another, right? And some of you guys will be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Check one, PT, motivation. Yeah, I'm producing. Are you? Was it, was it for those things? Were you, were you seeking for the benefit of those around you, right? What was your real motivation? But here, let me tell you this. What you should be saying is that in my workplace, in my work, am I helping people flourish, listen, spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, socially? In my workplace, I'm, I'm sure every one of you guys are building something. I'm sure that in some sort of formal way, you're creating something, you're, re- you're arranging something that's going to benefit the community, unless you're really, you know, in a bad job. And if you are in a bad job that, that just exploits and hurts people, Please get out of it, right? But if you are in a job like that, the question you have to ask as you bring flourishing is this. Am I in my workplace helping people flourish spiritually? Not just your coworkers, but that your work would actually produce that. So how do I do this, PT? That's a good question. That's something we need to talk about, right? Every job, every, every job does this in a very specific way. Every job does this in a very unique way. That's the beauty of the... the, the the differences, the mosaic of jobs that we have. 
The beauty of the mosaic of jobs that we have is that every job do these things differently, engages it in different aspects, and overall, we build something that's actually very beautiful. But the question I'm asking is, are you even considering the question? Have you even considered the question? That are you bringing flourishing, are you, are you flourishing your people spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, and socially? And are you willing to do that? Well, this is the hard one right here. Are you willing to do that even if it's not financially fulfilling or emotionally fulfilling for me? Because that's the bottom line. That's what I got to do. That's what God has called me into. My job is to bring flourishing. Right? I mean, there was a season where being a trash man wasn't very, you know, lucrative. It is now, but, like, it wasn't very lucrative, right? And it's not emotionally very fulfilling, I think, right? I mean, if, you, if anyone out there, sorry, right? Anyone's out, you know? But the, the idea is what? You do it. The more, as, a, as a Christian, if you, are, if you are someone who picks up trash, you know that you're doing a public service for the community around you because if trash builds up, rats come and all that stuff, bubonic plague and all that stuff happens, right? Trash sanitation is a very important thing, yes? Right? It helps the community. But the question is, the question is, are you seeking for the spiritual, emotional, relational, physical re aspect in that job? Because you can. You can. And even if it does not pay as much or is it emotionally fulfilling that you're willing to take it because you know it will. You know it will. Right? There was this, um, there was this one time there was this, uh, this homeless guy. It was a really weird homeless guy. It was, it was, he, came, he came up to one of the city meetings I was at and he said like, I would like to pick up trash on so-and-so street. Right? He said, can I do it? And then the, all the city officials were like, uh, if you want to, right? Like, you don't have to. We have, I mean, like, said, no, no one's picking up trash in that way. They're ignoring that area. I would like to do that. Said, yeah, but we can't pay you, sir. Like, I'm not asking for pay. I just want the streets clean. Right? It wasn't, I don't think it was emotionally fulfilling, but I don't know, right? Definitely wasn't lucrative, but he did it. Because why? It brought common good the community around them. So the question you have to ask for, the trajectory that you need to ask first is this. Is what you're doing helping bring flourishing to the community around you? Are you helping your people flourish spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, socially? In your workplace, when you show up to that place, are people glad that you're there? When you take on projects at work, do you only take on projects that help promote, get, help get you a promotion? Or you take on projects that no one actually wants, but actually does real good for people around you? If you're a lawyer, do you only take high-end deals, projects or, or clients that actually will pay much? Or do you take pro bono cases that pays absolutely nothing for the sake of what? Helping a, a mother or a child or a family member or someone in need. What is the motivation of your work? Secondly, here, the second trajectory I want you to think about is this. Proportion. Proportion. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. It says this. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, 
deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Okay? The word here, enslaved by all kinds of passion, being a part of something that has become an addiction to you. That work somehow has come to a place where work isn't just work. Work is your identity. Work becomes what you, uh, is, it becomes yourself. It becomes this, this person who you are. You are identified by what you do. Not as a person, you are identified specifically because of your job. Right? And, and, and you would, listen, this is the crazy, and you would do whatever it takes. Because this is how important work is to you. Your, your proportion is out of balance. It's out of whack. There is no balance in your life. You, you are a person who is constantly focused, enslaved, deceived, working, right, with your, uh, all kind of being sustained by all kinds of passions and pleasures, right, living such lives where you would do anything and everything, making any kind of dumb mistakes, making any type of dumb decisions, just so that you can feel you've made it. I've caught up. I'm finally where everyone else in my family is going. I'm finally where everyone, all my peers are at. I finally made it because work has been my self-identity. I have no balance in my life. It means everything to me. I will work 12 hours a day for six days a week, forget my sanity, forget my rest, forget my health, forget my spiritual life. What really matters is I've made it. That you would take on promotions to rise in the corporate ladder, to get a new title so that you can feel like you've made it in life and you would ignore your family, your children, never making to a game, never showing up to one of their things just because you felt like, at least I put food on the table. I have to be here so that I can lift you up is your justification. But you are out of balance. Don't you realize that? Your work has become your life. Your work is your life. Your work is your identity. And everyone else around you, including yourself, suffers for it. You have no proportion. What it means about trajectory is this. When you think about work, guys, you got to think about balance. You might have a great job. But if it throws you off, your balance... That's probably a bad job. You need, to think, you need to reconsider that maybe I should take another job. It might not give me much status or money, but one that actually can give me balance in life. Balance to be with the community. Balance to connect and rest with my God. Balance to love my wife and my husband. Balance to raise my kids. The fulfilling environment, balance to connect with friends and grow. We want to run to one extreme or the other all the time. We have no proportions in the way we think about work because we're so caught up in the idea that work is what defines me. Work is what makes me who I am. Work is what gives me status. It's what gives me power. It's what gives me control. It's what makes people respect me. It's what makes me respect myself. But that reveals something about your heart, honestly, about you and God. Because he came to free you, not to enslave you more. And so when you think about work, you got to think about work that brings balance. Proportion. All right? 
Sometimes you have to say no. Sometimes you got to say no. I can't take that, boss. I'm sorry. He says, we're looking to give you that promotion, but we need you to be in the office for the next three months. Uh, you know, my kid's graduating. No, we can't. We got to. You got to make sacrifices sometimes, people. Well, bye. <laughs> right? But how many of us, how many of our parents made the wrong sacrifice? They sacrificed you, modern-day sacrifice of their children, for their own identity. You got to have motivation, correct motivation, directed. You got to have proportion, which is balance. And thirdly, consolation, okay? Consolation. Verse 4, chapter 3. But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared... He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having hope of eternal life. Consolation. You know what consolation is? Lots of people in their life, they swing back from two, two uh, ideals. When you first start a job, you get, you're idealistic. You get in there like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do great things. I'm going to help a lot of people. I'm going to bless a lot of uh, uh, communities. I'm gonna, my job is so amazing. And then you start working for a while, and the minutia of the work, the paperwork, the day-to-day -day grind leads you to a place where you end up being very cynical, very bitter, right? I have a lot of my friends who start off as nurses, right? They're like, yeah, you know what? We're going to help people. We're going to, you know, be, we can't be doctors because... We didn't, we're not smart enough, but we're going to be nurses, right? And, you know, we're going we're gonna to be just as much of a blessing to people. Nurses do a lot of work anyways with their justification. And then after about a year of working, dealing with people, dealing with liars and things, and they become cynical. The people come in, it's like, I'm not going to help you. You're a liar right now. It's like, but you don't even know. You just, you can tell because you're cynical of how people do what they do to get, you know, a fix in, right? What the Christian have is not the swing. Our blessed hope, the hope to come, the eternal promise, the glory of Jesus Christ, it, it prevents you, it gives you consolation from swinging from the ideal to cynicism, back and forth. And I think as a lot of us, we, 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 we fall into these places all the time. We're very idealistic or we're very cynical, right? But can I tell you, one of the trajectories of work it's consolation. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It means that in the midst of us wanting to do great things for the world, that even when we fall short of it, we know that we have hope, we know that what we hope to accomplish will someday be completely fulfilled. I have a friend who works um, as a lawyer for uh, sex trafficking. Right? She, her job is to ensure that she fights for those who have been um, in the whole system of sex trafficking, slavery in that area, that she would find ways, she would work the paperwork, she do all these things to take them out of that system to give them a, a new start, a rehabilitating start, right, from the beginning. You know, it sounds like a very awesome job. Idealistically, she took it as a lawyer being centered on Christ for that, right? And, you know, when, when, she, when she got the job, we were like, wow, you're really doing it. 
you're really living out your Christian faith, right? You know, like everyone was like kind of just amazed by that. And then I, the ideal in her life swung to cynicism. You know why? Because she says, no matter how much I work, no matter how much energy I pour in, there's still someone else stuck that I cannot help. The system sometimes fails these people. No matter how much energy I put in, right? And, and you know, she, I was like, but, but your job seems so, like, awesome. It's like, you watch too much TV, PT, right? You know, you think that my job is going out there, like, in the, in the midst of it, fighting as a lawyer, like, you know, with the clients. Majority of my day is in the office just typing up stuff, you know, and briefs and all these things, you know? That's all I do. Once in a while, I jump into the courtroom, right? Every once in a while. Most of, the things are, most of these things are handled outside of the courtroom. You know, so it's not like the TV. It's not as, like, inspirational or motivational as you think. And as I do these things, she, she, she swung in a cynical way because she felt like, you know, like, it's just no matter how much I help, I seem like it doesn't even make a dent into the whole sex trafficking empire. Like, no matter how much I pour my energy into it, it doesn't even seem like I'm chipping even, like, a bit away from this humongous empire led by evil people. So I asked her, you know, then what's your consolation? This is what she said, you know, because she came to a place. She was, she was really bad once in a while, but she came to a place when she said this. My only consolation was this, PT, is that I know that in one, I know that there will be a day when every life will be free. My consolation for the work that I see no joy or progress in, though sometimes, once in a while, I get like, yay, you know, a little, yay. My one consolation is that I know that when, the, when my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, every wrong made right, every wrong made right, justice will be here. And I will see I will see the ideal that I fought for my whole entire life. Now is light. Amen. Amen. Some of you guys are in jobs and you feel like I'm not do. I've worked my whole life, or I'm working, and I don't even feel like I'm doing anything of value. Nothing seems to be coming out of it. And you know what the blessed hope gives you? It gives you a consolation. That though at this Juncture in your life, you may only have seen one glimmer of woohoo, right? There will be a day when you stand in glory and you see the ideal that you fought for, the ideal that you worked for, the ideal that you hunger for become fruition. And when that day comes, the Bible says we will rejoice and be glad. There's a deep consolation that Christians have in their hope of the gospel. A consolation that helps them to do what? To work with all of their hearts, all of their being, to not give up, to not be discouraged by the frustrating atmosphere that's around them. Because I know you and your work, you are constantly filled with, with frustrating atmosphere, right? You're constantly frustrated by people. You're constantly frustrated by the political system. You're constantly frustrated by the system in your own workplace. And you're wishing that it could be better. You're trying to help kids. You're trying to help people. You're trying to get things right. And the system makes it so difficult for you. And once in a while, you save one kid. You get one person through. And then 
you realize there's so much more to do and you feel just exhausted from all of that. The constellation that the Christians have is that you can still keep going. You can still keep fighting. You can still pour out that energy that you have because there will be a day where you stand before God in glory and all the wrongs that you have saw in this world that you sought with all your heart to make right, it will be right. And you can work each moment, each hour, each second as if you're working for the Lord. Yes, follow? So I can't tell you what job to take. I can tell you what motivations you should have when you take the job. I can't tell you how much you should work, but I can tell you what proportions of work you should have. I can't help you in your frustration of your work, but I can give you consolation for it. Yes, follow me? When you think about your work, think about the trajectories. Your motivation, are you bringing flourishing? Are you picking a job merely for your own personal benefit? Are you seeking for the flourishing, spiritual, emotional, relational, flourishing of those around you, your community? Are you living upright, just lives for that too? Are you seeking proportion? Is there balance in your life? Or are you all one or the other? No sleep or sleep all day, right? Do you have consolation for your work? So lastly, let me end with this. The reason. The reason we can work. Verse 6 to 7. The Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. The reason why we can do this is because of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Because in Jesus, what we saw was our Savior doing the work. At the cost of who? Himself. And what was the work? You. You were the work. For the joy set before him, the Bible says he endured the cross. The joy was to see you flourish. And so though he did not have to, he sought to. To come. And at the risk of his own life, at the pouring out of his own life, he did the work that the Father sent him to do. To give you flourishing to give you this blessed hope. And so when you have work now, when you are dealing with work now, church, please listen, when you're dealing with work now, would you wake up? Would your motivation be more than just self-centeredness? Would you have balance in your life? Would you know, no matter how frustrating, no matter how circular you keep running around, you are a blessed child of the living God, saved and destined for glory. As he says here, having the hope of eternal life. That is your privilege. That is your promise. 
Would you go and live upright, just lives for the good of those around you? Let's pray.